welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also at Austin Glidden. You'll find me. Definitely come uh, hang out with me. You can also find me on Letterboxd, Austin Glidden on Letterboxd, if you're a fan of that. Um, you can also email us at uh, mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Also, please make sure you you know uh, follow, subscribe, whatever the thing is that you do wherever you listen to this. Please do that. And, hey, give us a rating and a review if you feel like it. We'd really appreciate it. It helps us out. Now, today I am very excited. We So it's funny because this episode is being released after the new Candyman movie came out. But Joe and I actually were able to see it last Tuesday, so we saw it before it came out, and maybe we we should have posted it like Thursday night, I have no idea, but that was this week's episode, so hopefully you've even had a chance to see Candyman, but for those of you who are not going to the theaters right now and haven't had an opportunity to see it, or maybe you're just on the fence, you don't know what to do, we're here to give you some thoughts about the new Candyman movie. Uh, That was uh, a really fun conversation with Joe, excited to let you guys hear that. But before that, I was like, man, I want to do some solo reviews and I want to get back to some 2021 stuff. I don't want to just do old movie, like older movies or past movies. I want to do kind of newer ones. And though, you know, I didn't get any that were as new as Candyman, I did try to stay within about a month or give or take. And so, um, you know, I'm I'm also going to do solo reviews of the documentary about Val Kilmer called Val came out uh, July 23rd. So not that long ago. And then uh, I, I'm also doing a review for the great, the Green Knight from this year, uh, which came out, you know, about a month ago. So, uh, you know, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. But I'm really excited to get to the Joe Candyman discussion. So uh, I'm not really going to go on and on about any more right now. Why don't we just go ahead and get into it? Let's hear my thoughts on the documentary Val. Val is a new documentary. It came out this year on July 23rd. It was directed by Ting Pu and Leo Scott. And uh, pretty much the only cast in the documentary that's notable is Val Kilmer and his son, Jack. And, um, you know, for over 40 years, Val Kilmer, one of Hollywood's most mercurial and or misunderstood actors, has been documenting his own life and craft through film and video. He has amassed thousands of hours of footage from 16mm home videos made with his brother to time spent in iconic roles for blockbuster movies like Top Gun, The Doors, uh, Tombstone, and Batman Forever. This raw, wildly original and unflinching documentary reveals a life lived to extremes and a heart-filled, sometimes hilarious look at what it means to be an artist and a complex man. If you can't tell, that synopsis came from elsewhere. But here's the thing about it, all right? I always have trouble reviewing documentaries. Uh, documentaries, you know, unless it's about, say, politics, for example, and I can expose inaccuracies or, or, or misinterpretations or highlight where these facts came from, or, you know, some, some sort of kind of, uh, uh, objective information to the extent of there is evidence to back it, right? Like anything like that, um, or something like the thin blue line, which focuses on, uh, you know, uh, a real crime that happened, and the whole film is essentially about getting this guy off of death row because they, the filmmaker 
believes he is innocent. So, and and successfully, <laughs> it did. But anyways, you know, uh, as long as the content is compelling to me, that's great. But unless there's something more to it, it's kind of hard for me to talk about. And, you know, one of my favorite docs, for example, is, is Crumb from 1994, I believe. And it's just a doc about comic book artist Robert Crumb and his uh, influence on the business. But Terry Zweigoff turns it into so much more by letting us meet others in his life. I think it's perfect. Okay, perfect. Or a documentary like The Times of Harvey Milk, which follows Milk's life, and it's all about, you know, uh, his life, but also tackling the much larger aspects of homosexuality during his time and the places that he was, for example, San Francisco. Or my last example for, uh, you know, that I want to get into is Crip Camp from last year. It was on my top 10. You know, it's the same thing. It's about people with disabilities, but also the ableism that is, goes unseen by a majority of Americans who would otherwise support these people. So, it's crazy because, you know, you have these documentaries that have a lot to say, but sometimes, you know, the production or the way that a story is told can actually make or break the documentary. It's like, yeah, the information's fine, but, you know, uh, the way you're telling the story is not necessarily the best way. And so, you know, Val is is something different. You know, it still has some of the same challenges, but it's also generally just a challenge for me to process. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that here. First, I, I, I think there's one criticism that I want to start with before I talk about what I loved about Val. Val is one of those documentaries that is less powerfully crafted uh, and more about covering a naturally powerful topic. You know, in this case, Val Kilmer coming to grips with the illness that stole his career, as he would see it. So luckily... You know, Val didn't fall into the stereotypical actor doc where we just sit back and praise what they've done chronologically and, you know, have talking heads that knew the subject, telling stories, etc. What elevates Val is the home video footage, for example, that Kilmer stocked up since childhood and the focus, you know, on our main attraction, which is Val Kilmer. So the stock footage and, and by stock footage, I mean his home videos and Val Kilmer himself. Because of his battle with throat cancer, he can no longer speak properly. You know, if if you're like me and didn't know that until you saw the trailer of the film or just now heard it from me, you know, I was shocked too. I had no idea Val Kilmer couldn't speak. I basically can't speak. He actually has uh, a breathing tube apparatus like in his throat and he has to cover it up and then he has to speak and it's like a voice box or something. I don't really know exactly uh, all the science behind it, but it is, uh, I had no idea. So this was like very shocking to me. But because he can barely speak, his son Jack narrates his words throughout the film. And, you know, the, these these are really touching, you know, and they're great touches to the documentary. But this is, you know, all capturing something that would be powerful no matter what. Because the content itself, what you are covering, is powerful. Now, one can argue the documentarian's job is is to be as objective as they can, uh, you know, depending on what they're covering, and you know, also depending on what the subject and goal are, of course. But some would argue this that we're supposed to be objective documentarians. That is not we, but documentarians. But choices are still made when filming a documentary, and um, you know, the actual filmmaking of Val is, uh, I think, a bit lackluster. And throughout this little mini-review, I will talk a little bit about that. 
But it doesn't change that the film is still really powerful to me. But it would have benefited from someone, you know, coming in to tell the story in a way that enhanced its innate power. And in this case, I think the power just comes from the subject matter. Now, it's not like, you know, Steve James's Roger Ebert doc, Life Itself, a simple story but told perfectly, a five-star effort, in my opinion, because you see Roger Ebert's backstory and how he became pretty much... Uh, the most famous film critic, essentially, but you're also seeing where he ended up later. But the power of Steve James' life itself is that a lot of these things are juxtaposed. The way the story is masterfully crafted is what makes it so powerful. Yes, the content itself is emotional and it is powerful, but the way Steve James tells the story is more so. And that's something I found lacking in Val, even though, again, it is still powerful. Now, uh, again, the way the film is edited, talking about Val, the score, the shots, all of these choices can be, you know, used to much more effect. Again, not bad, but just not as good as it could be. Val is uh, not afraid to tackle the realities of Kilmer's illness, his career, both good and bad parts, etc. You know, it's uh, very clear Kilmer never reached the potential and level he believed was meant for a talent that he believes he possessed. Meaning, I think for people he sees as talented as he thinks he was, he did not get where he believed he deserved to be. And uh, that, that comes through very clearly to me. You know, he's very open about these things, and that was really refreshing, you know, uh, that kind of honesty and vulnerability. And as I watched, I was often reminded of Darren Aronofsky's The, the Wrestler, even though these, this is a terrible comparison because they're not really similar. They're super different beyond, uh, you know, even just beyond one being a fictional drama and the other being a documentary. But, you know, there, there's a scene where Kilmer is at a Comic-Con and it reminded me of The Wrestler, the scenes where, you know, he's in some like bingo hall with like 10 people getting his autograph. Now, the Kilmer thing is much different. There are people lined up, you know, I mean, he's a much bigger star, but... Though Kilmer is not as, you know, air quotes, low as Randy the Ram and the wrestler, in Kilmer's eyes, he is, relatively speaking. Uh, Kilmer was one of the top blockbuster stars at one point, and now he's stuck at a Comic-Con talking to people about his past work, wishing he could work now. So you get this, you know, the, hopefully you see why. Again, I'm only bringing up the wrestler because it kept popping into my mind, even though there's really nothing... Uh, you know, there's not much similar, but there are certain themes of like these aging artists, basically. And I thought that was really powerful in Val. I actually did like that. Um, and this is overall, this is a really bittersweet story. You know, on one side, you feel proud that Kilmer comp what he accomplished. And despite his life happenings, he has a family and, you know, he's trying to recover. But on the other end, you know, he's lost everything that he had even just a decade ago. You know, uh, everything that, you know, he saw as himself. And so, again, there's a bittersweetness to it. But, you know, another criticism I have is, you know, in, in many other ways, Val often seems to focus on, you know, be more focused on image management rather than, you know, explosive autobiographical exploration from Kilmer's adult life. You know, it, it touches on things like Kilmer being difficult to work with and how unhappy he was on certain sets, but... You know, it's far more interested in his family uh, trauma, particularly the childhood death of his brother Wesley, 
you know, this stuff's great. Like the 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 family drama and and trauma stuff is is a really great touch. But despite how honest the film can be, you know, back to those choices one makes to make a powerful moment even more powerful you know some of Kilmer's more traumatic or life-altering moments as an adult get passed over quickly or or some of his reputation benders right like they do touch on little things about him being difficult to work with but he also is the person kind of justifying or acknowledging these things himself so I would I don't know there's something that this these are kind of the some of the things that I still am processing I'm like thinking about because it's like man how like how could you do that Better. I have a few ideas, but again, I'm not. There's no point in talking about them. That's not what's in the film. So, anyways, you know, the film does touch on his career in its entirety, uh, like his work in Top Secret, Top Gun, uh, The Doors, Batman Forever, Tombstone, just everything. Even Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but they kind of just brush over that, which made me really sad because it's one of my favorite Val Kilmer movies ever. Uh, and they literally just show scenes from it and just kind of like go by. Like, go by, I think. I mean, it's like barely even shown as kind of a bummer. But it focused on, you know, his perfectionism and how that contributed to both the positives and negatives of his reputation. It discusses his feelings about Marlon Brando and the dreadful island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, If you don't like Val Kilmer, this film will likely still have something for you. And I strongly encourage you to go check this out. Despite any of my criticisms, this is a damn good documentary still, I think. It's entertaining, it's solid, it's a person that you know. This is a figure that was in the mainstream, who now is no longer really in the mainstream, but has made something that is worth seeing. So you should definitely go check it out. For those of you who are Val Kilmer fans, duh, go check this out. You're going to be a fan, I'm sure. Uh, And, you know, if you're interested in Kilmer, like I said, it's here. And... On that level, it's a relatively surface-level exploration of his life. If you're like a diehard Kilmer fan and have done research, this will be more of a surface thing. But he does have little insights that are interesting, and a lot of them do come from his current place or current state in life. Uh, and I, I found that that was probably one of the more interesting aspects, is not only are you seeing it, hearing it from the horse's mouth, but you're hearing it from the horse's mouth where they are now. And that means more than most people because he can't do that anymore. It's not like a rock star who still plays music but is talking about a past record. You know, like Metallica can talk about, you know, their master puppets. But they can go out and play master puppets, right? (laughs) Like they can still play if they want to. Uh, You know, this guy can't. So it just adds a different, uh, a whole different thing. And so, you know, I, I think it's still a beautiful film. Not perfect, but certainly, certainly worth seeing. I gave this film a three and a half out of five. If you have seen it and you agree or disagree, please hit us up on social media. Again, Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, if you haven't seen it, you can check it out for free on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can check it out. You might be able to rent it elsewhere, maybe even on Amazon. Maybe you can just rent it. But uh, if you have Amazon Prime, it's for free on there. Definitely go check that out. I want to hop on over before we get to Candyman. I want to hop on over to another 2021 picture that I had a chance to see and was very excited to see. And that's called The Green Knight. The Green Knight is from this year. It was released July 30th, 2021. So, you know, it was, what, a month ago? It was written and directed by David Lowry, who uh, brought us some 
great films like Ain't Them Body Saints from, I think, 2013. I was a huge fan of that movie. And uh, he also brought us a ghost story, which I am ashamed to say I never saw. You have to understand, uh, around that time, <laughs> there were a few years around 2017 that uh, were just the dark ages in my cinematic journey. I just had a lot going on. And I missed so. I bet I saw 30 movies over the course of like those years. Uh, so it was uh, bad news. And 30 movies from those years. I'm the whole. Po- I'm digressing. The point is, we're talking about the Green Knight here. And uh, it's <laughs> written and directed by David Lowry. Cast is uh, Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, uh, Joel Edgerton, Sarita Chowdhury, Sean Harris, and Ralph Innocent. Uh, hopefully I said all those right. Anyways, uh, like I said, it's re- released a month ago. This budget, I'm bringing up the budget on this one in particular, $15 million. This is a crazy low number for a modern movie, okay? You don't get much cheaper than that these days, unless it's like super cheap or independent. This film, $15 million and getting what Lowry got out of this, I am extremely impressed. We'll get there. So the film is an epic fantasy adventure based on the timeless Arthurian legend, The Green Knight. Uh, It tells us the story of Sir Gawain, uh, King Arthur's reckless and headstrong nephew, who you know, embarks on a daring quest to confront the mysterious Green Knight, a gigantic emerald-skinned stranger and tester of men. As an introduction, the Green Knight barges into Arthur's court on horseback and challenges uh, the court to a game. Any knight who is able to land a blow on him uh, will win his green axe, and it's this massive, beautiful axe. However, the knight must travel to the Green Chapel the following Christmas to receive an equal blow in return, Sir Gawain takes up the challenge, and thus the magical tale begins. So basically, this enigmatic green giant barges into King Arthur's round table chamber on horseback and is like, yo, I want to play a game. If any one of you can hit me in a fight, you win my badass axe. And... Uh, you know, but one year from now, next Christmas, you have to come to this green chapel and let me give back to you what you gave to me, meaning receiving an equivalent blow. So, you know, Gowan lobs the dude's head off and the next year seems problematic, doesn't it? So that's part of the whole, uh, the whole thing. So the film follows Sir Gowan the following year as he makes his journey through the land north to the Green Chapel. And in many ways, the structure of the film reminds me of one of those films like uh, the one on my 2020, best of 2020 list last year, uh, The Painted Bird. Now, before I scare someone away, uh, these films are completely different things, okay? <laughs> but the idea of taking a journey in each chapter in the film as a signature chapter in the journey, I think is fairly comparable. Yes, there are better comparisons. They are not coming to mind. Um, But uh, Gowan meets people during every step of the journey, and we learn lessons from each. So, you know, from a business perspective, I'm actually surprised the ads for the film did not lean way more heavily into the King Arthur stuff. I mean, Gowan is Arthur's nephew, so there's a direct tie there. But honestly, I'm glad it didn't on a personal level. First, the story isn't about King Arthur, per se. So, you know, it's Gowan's tale. So So the Green Knight should be able to stand on its own as a piece of media now, right? A film or the poetry uh, originally. And I love that, you know, uh, the backers of the film just gave the creators enough room to not 
tie it into the larger and more famous story. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. So, you know, uh, I think it should just stand on its own because it is its own story. And that's that. Now, second, you know, I went into this mostly blind, minus seeing the opening sequence as a clip on YouTube. So learning all the King Arthur stuff during this experience was awesome. And it excited me and gave weight to certain aspects like Arthur's sword, because if you know the history of the sword, it's just an exciting thing. So, you know, that that wouldn't have ha happened otherwise. However, had I known that, you know, King Arthur, uh, all that stuff was in it ahead of time, I don't know, I guess I just, I would have expected such things, so it would have maybe held me back from certain exciting reveals, and I just realized here I am telling you all of these things that I preferred not knowing. And though they're not spoilers, I'm going to move on. Anyways, Dev Patel, probably best known for his breakout role in Slumdog Millionaire from 2008. He plays Gawain, and he is so good here. This is uh, one of those things that they say career-making performance, maybe, or or whatever whatever kind of like adjective or or kind of phrase you want to put before it that's positive, that goes here. I think Patel is awesome, and from what I've seen in his work, uh, this is my favorite performance by far for sure. Uh, there is a reservedness in his performance here in The Green Knight that I really connected with from the beginning from beginning to end. I have no complaints about, about his performance, honestly. I think it's spot on, and you get a great range here as we watch Gowan evolve from beginning to end. So he shows off his skill here. Uh, the whole cast is great, by the way. Uh, you know, Joel Edgerton is in it, and, and his parts are very good. Uh, each person that uh, Gowan runs into is performed beautifully. But David Lowry, the, the director, you know, who, again, brought us Ain't Them Body Saints from 2013 and A Ghost Story from 2017. I still can't believe I haven't seen that. I just keep forgetting about the movie. I have to go back and watch that. But anyways, you know, uh, Lowry directed... The, the Green Knight, of course, and one thing I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt about Lowry's work is he has a style, a vision. Now, not so much that when you watch a movie, you go, is that a David Lowry movie? Uh, you know, it's more of, you know, when you hear Lowry did it, you go, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's that kind of thing. Like when you hear that this person did the work, you're like, oh, that's not surprising. This does seem like something they do. Uh, Lowry's already established himself as that. So, you know, he seems like, you know, he was pretty particular about the film as well. Not only is it uh, uh, seen in the final product just with his craft, uh, but because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the film was postponed. So Lowry took six months to re-edit and rework the film because he was not happy with the original cut. That takes dedication. Lowry brought his team with him, including regular composer Daniel Hart and cinematographer uh, Andrew Palermo. And, you know, the, the music is so good. The camera work is actually really interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't really say much bad about it. I think the music is so fitting, and it, it's exactly where it needs to be. It's exactly where it doesn't need to be, and the mood is awesome, and, and the cinematography is great. The close-ups, the long shots, the landscape shots, uh, ev everything seems in its right place here, and I think that's one of the best compliments you can say about a cinematographer. It's less about, you know, uh, showing off and making you think it's cool, but it's more of everything fits in its place, and I think, uh, I think that's really important here. So all this great look and sound is not just, you know, a testament to Lowry's skill, but it's also the team that he chooses to work with. 
But the world in this movie is really important to bring up here. I'm not saying the special effects are perfect, but I think the Green Knight uses special effects correctly. You know, they're not overdone and showy. They exist to enhance the reality that is being shown. The most noticeable uh, CG in, in, in kind of a like a, an obvious way, I mean, you know, is, uh, you know, there's a fox in the film and there, there's some, you know, female giants uh, walking around. Th- those are noticeable. Like you can tell that those aren't real things. Not that they look bad per se. It's just, you know, you, you can notice them. But the landscapes look incredible. Okay, everything else in the film, and even the foxes look good, and the giants look fine. I'm not saying they're bad, but I'm just saying, like, I, as soon as I say everything looks perfect, you know, you can you can go and be like, well, the fox, I could tell that was fake. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying it fits in the world very well. Those do as well, but man, these landscapes, which look like they were shot in a green screen studio where, you know, the area the actor's walking is constructed and, you know, made to look like the ground, uh, instead of just like a concrete slab or whatever, you know, or a wooden stage, but it's just like, you know, it's earthy. Uh, not only is that constructed, but then it looks like there's CG around it, but you just can't really tell. I mean, it is so gorgeous. It is breathtaking to me. I'm sitting here watching this, and I'm like, I, this might just be my favorite looking movie I've seen in a long time. I just love the way it looks, and I'm talking about special effects here, folks, and I'm usually, you know, I usually poo-poo on such things, but this is really great. And, you know, I, I kept thinking of the game, if you've played video games, I, I kept thinking of the game Death Stranding in certain parts of the film, especially kind of these longer landscape shots and a certain uh, at a certain point. Uh, and Death Stranding is largely known for its gorge, gorgeous scenery. There's a lot it's known for, but that's one of the things, the land. And this film, I just kept thinking like, all right, if anybody's ever going to make a Death Stranding movie, they need to use this exact technology because it is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but it's dark and grim, but it still allows a lot of the beauty to peek out. It's just wonderful. Now, the inspiration for these films adaptation, in part, came while Lowry was creating a Willow diorama, actually. The film Willow, uh, which, going back to Val, Val Kilmer was in. Um, but yeah, I, I talked about, uh, I recently mentioned Willow after I saw it for the first time this year. And uh, they really don't make fantasy movies, period, anymore. But not like that. And not hard fantasy, you know. And when I say that, I mean like Lord of the Rings is hard fantasy, you know. <laughs> like stuff like that. Willow would be more of a hard fantasy. Um, uh, even something like Dark Crystal gets into more of like a hard fantasy uh, aspect. In many ways, The Green Knight is exactly that. Hard fantasy. It is a very non-traditional film for this generation. Unique and imaginative and, you know, more subtle ways than you would, you know, imagine with the film that I'm kind of bringing up movies like Willow and things to, you know, uh, and the like, but you know, this is a slow burn and it doesn't tell you the whole story verbally, but you have to use your brain and the end is abrupt and forces you to think outside of what you see. And, uh, you know, as I've said, it's beautiful to look at very well acted. It was created by a filmmaker who wanted to make something special and had the ability to do so. The film also tackles themes about human fragility and, you know, how insignificant individuals can be in the grand scheme of things. It's an attempt to, sorry, in an attempt, rather, to not spoil any of the film. I'll keep it all vague and leave it at that. But, 
you know, The Green Knight is a unique experience, and though it's not perfect, I hope more movies are made like it. I miss fantasy films, and uh, it's always a breath of fresh air when someone makes one with such effort. I gave The Green Knight a 4 out of 5. If you have seen it and agree or disagree, as always, please hit us up at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have not seen the film yet, it's still in theaters. If you feel comfortable and safe going to the theaters, um, I don't usually encourage that, but if that's what you want to do, uh, it is there. Otherwise, put it on your list so that whenever it comes out on VOD, you can definitely keep that in mind and check that out. Hey, but now is the time. We're going to go see what Joe's up to. We're going to hop over to the Candyman remake that came out this year. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about this, so let's go see what Joe is doing. All right, everybody. I'm here with Joe Shearer. It's been a while again, Joe. Say hi to everybody. Hi, what's up? Hey, how's everybody doing? They can't answer you, but it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too bad we're not on like Twitch where people can actually. We should do that sometime. Actually, um, maybe we'll do a uh, a, a watch along yeah. on like Twitch or something, and people can actually mm-hmm. like respond to us. Anyways. Uh, you know, t- we had a chance to watch the Candyman remake that came out uh, last Friday when this drops, and uh, we, we got a chance to see it early last week. We kind of got our stuff together, and before it was released, we decided we would just record this and uh, and get this out of the way, talk about this movie. Very excited about it. Again, this mm-hmm. is the Candyman remake that came out 2021, like just a few days ago. It was directed by Nia DaCosta. It was written by Jordan Peele of, you know, Get Out uh, and uh, uh, Us. Uh, us. Yeah, Us. But what's the uh, what's the the uh, comedy group? Why can't I think oh, of that? Oh, Key and Peele. Yeah, Key and Peele. Thank you. I had, I had yeah. a P word in my head and I couldn't get it out. Right. Anyways, Key and Peele, he did all this stuff. Of course, I'm sure you guys already know. Uh, but also, when Rosenfeld and Nia DaCosta helped write that script as well. Um Oh, God. I actually meant to do my homework before I came on here because I'm going to butcher these names. And, Joe, you got to correct me if I get this wrong. Uh, Yaha Abdul-Mateen II. My God, I feel so bad right now just talking. Uh, Tiona Paris, Nathan Stewart Jarrett, Coleman Domingo, and Tony Todd. Uh, Tony Todd, of course, being the original Candyman. Um, also yeah. in the movie, I wasn't a big fan of Agoraphobia, which we had uh, Lou Simone on here, uh, and she's yeah. great. Uh, love her. And uh, this was, as I said, released last Friday, August 27th, and it's a remake of the 1992 film of the same name, of course. This is not a sequel. This is a remake, uh, essentially, even well, though there are, it's kind of a spiritual yeah. sequel almost to the first yeah. one, as if the... Kind of like the Halloween remake that David Gordon Green did, where it's like they just eliminate the others in the series and kind yes. of follow up. I guess so. It's not really a remake, um, mm-hmm. but it's almost a remake in the way that the thing from 2011 was technically like a prequel, uh-huh. but it was like kind of basically a remake. <laughs> like it's basically the same thing. Yeah. Um, this yeah. is kind of similar, but it really does its own thing. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but a little bit about the film. For as long as the residents can remember, the housing projects in Chicago's Cabrini-Green neighborhood were terrorized by the word-of-mouth ghost story about the supernatural serial killer, the Candyman, easily summoned by those daring to repeat his name five times into a mirror. 
In the present day, a decade after the last Cabrini Towers were torn down, a visual artist named Anthony McCoy and his girlfriend, an art gallery director named Brianna Cartwright, moved into a luxurious loft condo in Cabrini, now gentrified beyond recognition and inhabited by the upward mobile millennials. With uh, Anthony's painting career on the brink of stalling, a chance encounter with a Cabrini Green old-timer exposes Anthony to the tragic, horrific, uh, tragically horrific nature of the true story behind the Candyman. Anxious to maintain his status in the Chicago art world, Anthony begins to explore these macabre details in his studio as a fresh and deep motivation takes over to finish a series of paintings on the dark history he uncovers unknowingly opening a door to a complex past that unravels his own sanity and unleashes the terrifyingly viral wave of violence that puts him on a collision course with his destiny. You know, what we get here is is not what I expected in the Candyman kind of remake slash sequel slash spiritual successor, whatever you want to call it. I didn't expect this, Joe. You know, we, yeah. we not only get a handful of gruesome horror sequences... But we also get a depiction and dialogue about, you know, the endless cycle of violence perpetrated on black bodies by white supremacy and the system it created. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm aware that there is a, a bit of this in the original Candyman, but I'm going to be transparent here, Joe. Uh, I still have never seen the original from beginning to end, and I did that on purpose for this one. I wanted to have a fresh take on this and not be clouded by the original. I do plan to go watch the original as soon as I can now, though, because I do want to see it kind of retroactively. I've actually not done this probably in over 10 years. I usually do see the original first and then tackle it. This one, I actually intentionally went the opposite way. So uh, I, hopefully that will maybe provide you know, a, a pretty clear third-party view of this movie, not tying it to the original. You, of course, have seen the original, so I'll be curious to get kind of your take on how some of those things work. But I'm aware, uh, you know, of, of quite a bit of the original Candyman, um, and though I haven't seen it from beginning to end, you know, uh, I get a lot of the references that are kind of thrown back to it as well. And, uh, you know, obviously the very end of this film you know, well, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. um, Joe, my, 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 my pass to you here is, yeah. do you think I missed out on, you know, not seeing the original first? Or do you think that this one holds enough weight in its own that listeners can go in without, you know, going back to the original? You know what, you know what I think this one kind of did that I, I really liked, you know, usually it's kind of a thing where you get more out of it if you see the original yeah. you know, first. And I don't know, maybe that's true here, but it's also, it could also kind of have the reverse effect where the way that it references the, the original, it almost builds, builds it up a little bit. And it's like, Hey, go, you know, if, if you haven't seen this now, it, I don't think you're missing out on the, the, obviously the main narrative of the film. Um, they do a really good job of, of reintroducing and, and even really expanding the kind of the mythos of it all. Definitely. And, you know, they, they cover a lot more, you know, they, they very much glossed over in the original by comparison. I mean, this, this movie spends most of its runtime kind of establishing some of that stuff. And not so, only that, they put money into the explanation by using these paper dolls. Yes. And which those, is excellent. Yeah. If, if you have seen the, the trailer 
where they only yeah. use those paper doll scenes. It is magnificent. It is such, it is one of the best trailers I've ever seen. And it's, it's heartbreaking and it's scary and it tells the story. It's, and it's just telling the story with no words, just the, you know, you, but you get everything that's going along if you're watching it. Yeah. And it's got this kind of like sad, like sad, simple old music. And it almost sounds like a music box or something. Um, and it's just, it's just incredible as a trailer, but they, but I was really happy to see that they actually incorporate that into the film as part of the, as part of the, you know, the, the mythos as well. So definitely perfect. Um, it was perfect in that sense. Um, so yeah, but, but kind of to get back to your question, I, yeah, I, I feel like it gives enough context of the original that you could be like, Hey, I want to go see it. And it'll kind of fill in those gaps for you. But if you haven't seen it, they are very, very explicit with um, how, like what, basically what happened in the original, um, but they do gloss over that, that original ending um they they do kind of ignore that you know the i, I don't know should i should we spoil the original i probably shouldn't spoil it for you if you have never seen i it. don't give a shit i, I mean i'm gonna watch <laughs> it regardless and it's not gonna right. ruin anything i might even already know what you're going to say to be honest but go yeah. ahead and go ahead and well, share it this movie has been around yeah. for like over 20 years maybe uh-huh. something like or right around 20 yeah. years 19 something like that you're yeah. fine Go ahead. All right. So, well, and also, I've we've given you enough. Uh, I've given you enough advance notice. If you don't want to know what happens in the original, you know, shut it off, or or, or skip ahead. Yeah, a couple skip minutes. ahead a, a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically, at the end, uh, Virginia Madsen's character dies saving this baby from this big giant bonfire, and then she sort of becomes Candyman herself, and. It's kind of a, it's sort of a Carrie-esque ending or a uh, Friday the 13th kind of in stinger kind of ending. It's kind of lame, honestly, com- you know, compared to, you know, when, especially when you look at, when you start talking about cultural appropriation and stuff, she kind of appropriates Candyman herself by becoming Candyman. It's kind of, I think today it kind of would come off, uh, in today's world, it comes off a little differently, I think, than they intended it to. But, um, but here they kind of ignore that. They, they talk about her quite a bit, especially early in the film. Um, and they, in her recordings are involved and, you know, you see picture of her and they, they have these discussions about her, but other than that, she's not really involved. So, um, so they, they establish that, but, um, but again, this is an entirely new story. Um, well, I mean, it, it does, it does kind of feed off of it, but yeah, but it's its, it's own it's, thing. I know what you mean. Yeah. It's, it's certainly a reintroduction to the character. And like, and like we said, the, the way that they approach it, approach it by making it kind of anyone who's been a victim of injustice of racial injustice is Candyman, is, is kind of a cool concept and it, it creates kind of a new experience. And so, so yeah, so, so that's a, a long way of saying, eh, I don't think it, you missed out too much by not seeing the original. Don't let it stop you if you're not, if you haven't seen this and be like, oh, I got to see the original first. Go watch it and then go watch the original. You'll get some more context, but it won't ruin this by any means. Sure. Yeah. You know, I I don't think you can also divorce the kind of surface level horror film from the very clear messaging that oh, is no. kind of like put through this film. Um, and I think that's probably the thing that really sh- like uh, highlights a stark contrast between this and the original. 
there was obviously, especially looking back on it through kind of a racial lens, you can clearly see in the original Candyman that there yeah. are some uh they're they're playing with race there like there are there is a lot going on but like you said over the years it's kind of strange that (laughs) how it kind of plays out and i did know that ending so you didn't spoil anything for me but like (laughs) yeah it is just kind of weird this one of course with no surprise with the writer being jordan peele i actually think the script in terms of narrative, how they fit subtext into it, how the whole film progresses is actually really well done, especially sure. for like a, a contemporary horror movie, which I am, I tend to poo-poo all over because yeah. I think they're usually awful. However, this one actually kind of caught me off guard. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess I'm going to start here and I'll pass this back to you because I want your opinion on this. Yeah. Looking at representation. Now, this is a big passion of Jordan Peele's. And, of course, he didn't direct this, but I'm just mentioning this. You know, that was a big passion of his. Like, for example, the film Us did not have to have essentially an all-black cast, but it did because that matters to Jordan Peele. He wants the representation on screen. I think that's very important. And, you know, I like a lot of the racial subtext in Candyman, Mm -hmm. but there's also... This is going to sound like a, a, a knock against it, but I'm going to give you kind of two sides of it here. Uh, but I feel like a lot of it is like really heavy handed. Like it's like like super on the nose, you know, like yeah. just conversations of them talking about gentrification and and mm-hmm. uh, and like police or like uh, violence by white authorities and, you know, different things. And uh, that part really, it's not that it rubbed me the wrong way because I think those things are important and I'm glad they're in a film. However, for me, it's like, man, but you have a ton of really cool subtext underneath that Mm would have, I would have been fine. You could have cut the other obvious stuff out. But then I thought about, well, I like what it's doing. And when you think about what the purpose of putting these things in a movie are, especially from uh, you know, uh, films made by black creators who are yeah. have messaging that is very kind of positive and and like informative, like black information, like messaging or however you want to put it. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting to me because for me, I don't need the surface level thing, right? Like mm-hmm. I see the subtext; I think it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. But then I think about the casual moviegoer who's going to this to see a scary movie just for entertainment purposes. And I think, is that the reason that is so heavy handed at times? Because they want everyone to pick up on this, even the people not looking for it. And when I think of it that way, I'm like, okay, that's actually clever because change can't happen unless you talk about it on a level that the person you want to change can understand. And some of these people are not going to be looking for subtext. Therefore, give it to them heavy handed. They'll hear it. Hopefully you're representing ideas here and hopefully those ideas will stick with a few people. So I'm like torn because on a personal level, it's like, I don't like this heavy handedness, but I also see it as kind of important too. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like torn. Did you feel that some of this messaging was a little heavy handed in, in Candyman or were you just like, no, I'm cool. I I didn't, but, um, but the, I I get what you're saying and I, I agree with it, but I think the, I think you're right with that. Isn't that, you know, this is, this is meant, this is something that, these kind of movies that are accessible to everyone, right? Like, you know, there's, there's been quote unquote black filmmakers for years and years, you know, 
And, you know, you go back to people like Spike Lee and John Singleton back in the day. And I mean, the, their movies were very mainstream, but at the same time, back in that day, it was also, oh, they're a black filmmaker. Yeah. And they're making black movies. And, you know, and like their whole cast was black and it's like, great. But at the time there was kind of an, on a mainstream level, I mean, and their movies were big hits, of course, but they were also, there's also sort of a stigma to them because of that by the larger audience, you know, who was like, I don't want you to preach to me. I just want to watch a movie, you yeah. know, not realizing that every single movie is preaching something to you. You know, <laughs> the Avengers preaches something to you, you know? So, but you know, that that's obviously a different argument for a different time. But um, I think what Jordan Peele is doing is, is taking that mentality and, and kind of removing that stigma and making, just making a movie uh, about in a lot of ways, I I guess I don't know if I'm even maybe I'm not even really qualified to to say the phrase like the black experience quote unquote sure. but he's making a, he's making films you know with largely black people about topics that are important to them but he's making movies that white people also could watch and I, and when I say white people I mean those white people that wouldn't watch a John Singleton movie or a Spike Lee movie back or at in least the day. they wouldn't get it you right. I mean? Yes. Or at the very least, yeah, wouldn't get the full the full message or would be resistant to that message and that he can present it in that way so that it's not. I mean, maybe I mean, I'm sure there will be some people who are like, oh, well, you know, he's saying blah, 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 blah. But but the one thing that, that really kind of caught me about that, about, you know, the comments about gentrification is that that's it's kind of a, a sneaky way to introduce systemic racism into the picture yeah. you know they it's it's easy to to even if you know if, if you just removed all of that from this movie there's a lot of you know the and even the the paper the paper the shadow puppets kind of are all things that happened years and years ago you know th these are all things that are that are old racist things where they're you know beating and killing black people uh, you know indiscriminately and they're they're railroading them through the justice system and and getting harsh punishments for them for things maybe they didn't even do. And it would be, and it would be easy to watch the movie and go, Oh yeah, that's back years ago when racism was a thing and it's not a thing anymore. You know, and, and the gentrification part of that, that they talk about kind of gives us a little nod of, you know, this is something that the system has always done and guess what? It still happens. Even though, you know, people can look at that and go, Oh, look, the cities, the governments are fixing up these neighborhoods and these impoverished neighborhoods. And they're like, no, they're doing this for their own gain. They're they're building new areas so that they can get rich and be established as business owners. And they're make they're trying to make money off of black people. And that's that's really what they're doing. And and if anything, I thought that um you know, and I'm almost done, I promise. You're fine. <laughs> um, there there was a line um uh, in the, the movie where um I believe it was Brianna, I think, um, Anthony's girlfriend, the, yeah. the main character. When they're having that discussion, she said something along the lines of, yeah, so when white people realized, white people created the ghetto, and then when they created the ghetto, and they realized they created the ghetto, then they came in to gentrify it. And I was like, I mean, I get the line, but that's, I don't know that that's even going far enough. They really, you know, they, they looked at the slums, at the, the ghetto, and they're like, how can we continue making money off of this? Oh, how about if we go and level it and rebuild it and make it nice and establish new businesses and shove all these black people out again? 
Like it, I almost think that that was too tame of a sentence for yeah. what reality was. But well, they the even time, they even touch on it in the film, I believe, yeah. if I remember correctly, where they yeah. like you see people ducking behind buildings when cop cars go by. Yeah. Speaking of which, is a fucking siren. <laughs> Hate that so much. Anyways, but like you know, you get uh, you also get these people wondering like, are they trying to keep us in? Are they trying to you know kick us out? Like, there's these kind of like messages. And, and back to my kind of like heavy handedness, though, I do like those moments whenever I look at them in the film. I think the reason I have an issue, but like I said, I'm glad it's there because of the audience it's going for. But for yeah. me, it's like just seeing them in just them talking about Capri Green. Wait, did I just say that right? Cabrini Green. Cabrini yeah. Green. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just being in the Cabrini Green neighborhood in that nice ass apartment that they're in. Yes. All of the visuals tell you these things. And that's the subtext I'm talking about. But you're right. I agree with you that mm -hmm. these are great things to get a general. Uh, I feel like it sounds like I'm just saying the stupid people. That's not at all what I'm saying. <laughs> I've watched a lot of movies and studied it. There are people yeah. that just go to watch them for entertainment. And that's who I'm talking about. It's just a different thing. Yes. But also, yeah. You know, one thing that I think horror has been really good at in the past is taking subjects we're not supposed to talk about and tucking them away kind of underneath the tropes of a genre. So, like, using yeah. them as, like, allegories, supplying us with, like, a heavy dose of reality while also kind of hiding it under this unrealistic, like, scenario, you know? So, for example... Yeah. Looking at a completely different film, take like the original Night of the Living Dead. Seven people huddle in a house in the country, fending off mm -hmm. like hungry zombie hordes outside. And then, you know, six of them are white. And then you have Ben, who's like the token black guy, except right. he's not just the token black guy. He's actually the voice of calm and reason, you know, in this dire situation. He's the one that has ideas that, you know, uh, or he, you know, sorry. He is the voice of reason here, but he's also like the hero. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which in 1968 was a pretty hot topic when you're dealing with civil rights and ideas perpetuating white supremacy and, you know, assassinations and all these different headlines that are happening at the time and all of these yeah. race issues. Putting a black man as like your main guy is a statement in and of itself, let alone putting them in a point of like heroism, right? So, sure. like, dealing with those subjects, which Romero was always good at, even in his bad movies, his ideas are good. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, like, appreciate him so much as a filmmaker. And, like, this film does that, too. This kind of continues that, uh, like, time-honored tradition, so to speak, you know, of yeah. adding texture and context and meaning to a film that could otherwise just be a pseudo-slasher movie you know yeah. what i'm saying yeah, um so, so kind of backing up what you said but expanding on it i really love that about horror movies like this and i, and, and I honestly do think Candyman gets that right yeah again looking at the audience it's going for i can appreciate that even if on a personal preference level i don't always appreciate the execution uh, but i get it and you also have things like Again, I think this is actually really subtle, even though like maybe to like you or me, we might see this as obvious, but I, just in like as a marketing campaign, I didn't pick up on this right away until I thought about it more. But the film's tagline is dare to say his name. Yeah. And, you know, of course, this is uh, the whole like 
say Candyman five times in a mirror and he'll come kill you. But it's like also kind of intentionally echoing like the rally cry of the current movement yeah. against like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. undue violent or like, uh, um, uh, and yeah, like lethal yeah. abuse mm-hmm. of, from law enforcement and different things like the whole say his name movement. But like, yeah. dare to, like, I love all of these little things like that yeah. about this. And I, and I think if you're going to remake slash continue a story based on something we know, I really do think this is the way to go about it, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all of these people, DaCosta and company. You know, the director and all the writers and everybody, including Jordan Peele, these folks had a, a, a purpose making this. It's very clear when you watch it. They had a yeah. purpose that they wanted to uh, accomplish. They had a message that they wanted to say, but they also just wanted to make a kick-ass movie. Like, that's very clear, too. And all of the yeah. Candyman kills. There's a scene where, uh, and for those of you who have seen it in theaters by this point, you'll know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to try to keep it vague. Where uh, you know there are these high school girls in a in a in a ladies' room, and you know they're all standing in front of the mirror side by side, and they're gonna say Candyman five times because they heard this story, and one of them runs away, and then some little like geek girl comes in, and they're yeah. picking on her, and she goes in there, and she has her headphones on, she's trying to drown them out, which is like actually like I felt really sad during that moment. It's not even that the film makes it super sad. I just like felt super bad for her because I also yeah. knew what was about to happen. Yeah. And so they say they're five candy mans and there is just a complete massacre. This is no surprise. When you see this scene, you know, yeah. something's about to go down. It yeah. is just like yeah. not even a spoiler. Okay. Um, right. But yeah, it's like one of the, the gory moments, you know, and yeah. uh, man, that scene in particular, I thought was clever. I do see this is where like genre comes in versus like their messaging. I think yeah. again, and this is kind of where I'm like on either side. Cause it's not that I loved Candyman. I just think it's well done and I really appreciate it. And I think it's good. And I would encourage people to check this out. Yeah. But the reason I don't like love it is because they have such important messages, right? So then I'm watching this and I'm like, man, as a movie about these messages, if I were to exclusively watch it as that, I don't really like it that much by itself. But then you have yeah. these horror elements and I'm like, man, the juxtaposition of these two and having these together and, and mm-hmm. how they complement one another. Man, that's pretty cool. I wish there was X, Y, Z here, but I still like this. And then part of me yeah. is like, man, I wish this went further horror, right? Yeah. <laughs> the white guy here is like, I wish this was just... You know, like, I wish there were more of those scenes. Because honestly, I, you know, I, when I was setting this up, I mentioned, you know, we, we get some of those uh, gruesome horror sequences. And I put, like, I said we get a handful of them. Because I only remember, like, five. Yeah. Like, there really aren't that many. They're not long sequences. I mean, this is no. real. That's why I keep talking about, this is a movie about the messages they're talking about. Because they're Absolutely. not as interested in making this, like, a big gore fest. And part of me is like, man, I wish there were more kind of like of those moments because those horror sequences, though I liked them and I was surprised because I usually don't like a lot of, I think they use CG way too much or like they rely on jump scares. This actually does them pretty well. It looks good. Like it sounds good. Like the sounds are really intense. There's a lot going on. And so I really appreciated that. And it just, it's not that I wanted more gore per se, but I wanted more of like that horror genre 
Because mm-hmm. one thing I noticed is, and I'm going to shut up here in a second, pass it off to you because I want your opinion on all of this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, DaCosta, the director, when she creates these moments of tension like the bathroom mm-hmm. sequence, which I didn't actually feel that tense because it was like yeah. very obvious what was going to happen. But yeah. I, then I think of Jordan Peele. I think of Get Out, for example. Yeah. And I think of the sequence where he's talking to Catherine Keener's therapist and she hypnotizes him and he falls through the, the couch. How right. tense that conversation is prior to him falling through the chair. That whole scene is so good. Or all yeah. those scenes where he first meets all these old white fuckers like in the back of his yeah. house and everyone's yeah. super awkward because they're mm-hmm. trying to be cool and they're just being themselves. But it's like, it's that kind of cringe white suburban yeah. shit. You know what I mean? Right. And yeah. and so like, man, those moments really make me tense, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I watch, and honestly, even in Us, which out of the three, if I were to put Get Out, This, and Us, Us is my least favorite, even though I still liked it. But Us, yeah. the first moment where the doppelgangers basically come into the house mm-hmm. and they're standing there and they're talking to them and they're just in the house and it's just like really kind of quiet and weird. And I really love that tension. I think Jordan Peele is actually really good at blending genre with messaging. Yes. And I like part of me is like, fuck, I wish Jordan Peele just directed that. And it's not against DaCosta. I think she did a great job. But yeah. I prefer that Jordan Peele. That's a good balance for me. Right. Yeah. Like you get real horror, but you also get this like just a kind of cool movie or good movie on this other side. Right. And so all of that, I know I kind of word vomited it at you there, but out of all of that kind of the blend of horror versus messaging and all that, like, how do you feel about all that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, and I have, I actually have very strong opinions about it. Um, I have, I have a lot to say about it also. Um, You know, the, the first thing I noticed when the movie was over was that I was, I just thought this wasn't a jump scare kind of movie. This isn't a, this was, and, and I think Nia DaCosta is not, a horror filmmaker. Yeah. I think she's just a filmmaker. But she did very and, well with the horror. But I agree with you. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, in terms of like the, there are moments that are meant to really scare you, to to startle you. You know, in the way that like a Halloween will startle you, will scare you, where someone turns around and Michael Myers is like right there, like the the closet scene in the most in the 2018 Halloween, where you know where the the babysitter's like closing the you know the door and then yeah. like she opens it and there he is, you know. Like one of those moments that makes you jump in your seat. I, there are a couple where I felt like they were supposed to be doing that and it didn't really get that reaction from me. But I don't think that it it didn't really detract from the movie for me at all because the movie is so beautifully shot and done. There, There's a couple of sequences. The, the bathroom scene that you that you talked about, uh, it it raises the tension in a in a good way it's not but it's not really a it's not really that anticipating the scare kind of way if you're anticipating the scare you're going to kind of be disappointed because it, yeah. they're they're very they're mostly overt like you you see but you see a lot of things from a unique perspective and and i think about um there's there's a moment where someone drops you know where where we're seeing from the, and I, I'm sorry if we're going to spoil a little bit. I, it's it's a, just a little bit where um, there's a, uh, the, the girl who's in the bathroom is we see like her perspective where she's watching the, she basically sees the inside of the stall door 
while the chaos is going on outside. And then you see kind of like blood, you know, like splattering on the floor. And then you see a compact fall on the ground and fall open. And so you're watching through this little tiny mirror what's happening. And you see the girl, you know, with blood on her and she's like screaming and stepping. And then you see like the hook come into to play. It's really well done. It's not particularly frightening in that sense of like putting that kind of startle in you. It's, it's uncomfortable from this, it's you know scary from the sense of just dread and horror, but it's not a boo, I got you moment where you're gonna laugh afterwards. This is more of a, you're watching everything unfold and you see you know, people walking toward you slowly. And it's not, and it's not that, again, not that trope where, you know, the, the person should be running and they keep falling down or tripping. It's like, there's an inevitability to some of that, you know, when, when things are coming slowly into frame. Um, so th there's that scene. Then there's another scene where um, you, it, it ends up being, there, it's in an apartment. And again, I, I think I can say this one, you'll know what I'm talking about. But um, it's, you know, there's, they're in an apartment and you, and you see a shot kind of through like the back sliding glass door. And, and it's, you know, and it's dark outside and so that's lit inside and you see the inside very clearly. And as the action happens of someone being killed, there's this slow pullback. So the more the, like as the scene progresses, you're seeing it kind of from a larger viewpoint and it's amazingly done. I was just like, that's a wow kind of shot. And, uh, but it's, but again, it's not particularly frightening in that in your face kind of way. It's, it's more of a subtle, it's more of a subtle kind of thinking movie. And, and I, and I also don't want to say that to kind of discourage anyone because it's, it's a fine movie in so many different ways, including as a horror movie. It's just not one that's going to make you jump a whole lot if you're, especially if you're used to seeing that kind of thing. So um, I, I really thought that was, I really thought it was fantastically done. Um, in so many different ways, you know, speaking about cinematography and the writing as we've kind of touched on already, but don't go in expecting to jump and then chuckle at things because it's, it, it's much more of an, an intense, uh, more, in, there's an intensity to it, but it's not a jump at you, startle you kind of scare. So um, it, it's more of a, as, as Get Out was, especially in us to a degree, it, it's more existential in nature, I think, as far as the, the horror part of it goes. Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> I, I agree 100% with the, it's not, if you have the expectation that you just detailed, that's going to be a disappointment. Yeah. But I also feel like, you know, like, in, in a, so t take Get Out or Us, you know, the protagonists or the people that we're meant to care for are the ones who are being, uh, having violence performed toward yeah. them or however you want to say, you know, violent acts yeah. are acted out on them. And right. in, in, in Candyman, one thing I think is interesting because the horror trope is if you're black, you die first. Like that's the kind of classic, like the black guy always goes or, you know, like that kind of a thing. Um, but not here. Largely the black folks are pretty safe. They kind of yeah. swap that trope on you. Right. And most yeah. of the people that get the worst of it, are not black. Quite frankly, they're mostly white folks. And yeah, so I love that spin on it. But at the same time, not having your protagonist in any kind of direct peril, or at least, of course, there that's not a true statement, but there yeah. is less of a focus on yeah. the uh, 
violence toward your protagonist that you're meant to care for, that even the bathroom stall sequence, which I think in execution is very well done, but Mm -hmm. I didn't care about anyone. These people are being stupid. I mean, I don't want anyone to die. Of course, I have like just a general human reaction to people dying. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying like, like those moments could be so powerful if you cared about these people. And I don't feel like we get that a whole lot in this. And I think that's part of why, you know, there, there is a, there is an art gallery sequence. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yes, absolutely. Um, It's a perfect example of why you should not begin foreplay in front of a mirror. Um, (laughs) But the, the whole idea of that sequence is like really great. I don't give a fuck about any of those people. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I don't care about them. I don't care about the high school kids. <laughs> like, all of these right. people are kind of just thrown in to get, like, to get the thing across, right? But you only get a few of those, what I would say, the expected reactions that you were talking, like, if you expect kind of jumps or or that kind of a thing, you get that a bit when the protagonist is fucked with, right? Yes. There's the, an elevator sequence. Uh, there's uh-huh. a mirror sequence, there are these yeah. different moments where you kind of get that a bit more traditional, I'd say, kind of creepiness. Um, yeah. But in general, it's it's mostly just like you have these pretty cool kill sequences, but mm-hmm. it's it's just people you don't really give a shit about, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, and, and then fair, and then fair. it's like we go back to the story. You know what I mean? Like it always feels yeah. like a detract. Of course, they play that into the story, but yeah. it just felt so detached there. And it sucks because, like, I want to like this more than I do. And I do like it in the end. I'm I, Now I'm just kind of getting into the areas I am not huge on. But yeah. do you kind of get my point, kind of both building and just kind of reacting to what you said? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, it, and, that's, and I think that's part of the, the problem. This is not a movie where, you know, where you're, you know, think about something like Scream, right? Where, um, you know, the, the main character is is um you know menaced by the killer and she escapes and then you know one of her friends is menaced by the killer and maybe escapes or maybe doesn't but you know when when people die when some of the people die you have that that sense of loss right like there's this intensity right you don't want that person to die and and in a lot of horror movies there are always those characters where you're like yeah this person is clearly here to die later on in the movie oh yeah how they exist this is why they exist in this film and this movie is pretty egregious in the way that they set those up. You know, there's, like you said, and this is like being white is pretty much a, an indication that you're not going to make it. And, um, and so that, that kind of detracts from it a little bit. It, it would have been nice. And it's, and part of it is necessary because of the plot, Yeah. but there are characters. There are a couple of characters. Uh, Brianna's uh, brother um, is that Troy is his name. Um, He's a character that that really kind of lifts the movie whenever he's in it, but he's only in it for a couple of scenes, and you know he he doesn't really get involved in the the main the the horror aspect of the movie. He's just kind of there to be. I mean, he's there to be moral support for for her basically, and yeah. then he's in a beginning scene, and then he's later on he pops in for moral support, and then he's just kind of gone. And you're like, okay, I mean, we could have done something with him. Yeah, but I mean, Troy know, Troy has a really important. Uh, purpose, which is essentially setting off the entire film. But you're right. Eventually, 
you kind of just don't like there's no reason i actually thought uh that nathan stewart jarrett the guy who plays troy did very well like no, i think the performances and we'll get to the performances here it's definitely something oh. i want to touch on i think genuine just generally they're actually quite good and i do not yeah. say that about a lot of contemporary horror uh, but i actually yeah. think they're quite good here but we'll get back mm-hmm. to that uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I, just to kind of, I want you to keep talking, but just to make a point, like Troy does have a purpose, but you're right. At a certain point in the movie, he kind of just gets left behind. And I feel that way about different characters. Yeah, yeah. And, and even, even people like, like Coleman Domingo's character, who is absolutely vital to the plot, he, he kind of pops in and out. And it yes. almost feels like for him, it's like, oh, well, you know, he's shooting other stuff. And so he's like, oh, hey, I got two or three days to shoot. And so here, let's throw a couple scenes in. And then he, he pops in later and, and, and plays a, a bigger, more important role. But there, there's a lot of people like that that just kind of come and go. And, and they could have been kind of involved in a bigger way. And, you know, and, and if nothing else to kind of, you know, and, and a lot of horror movies do this too, where when, you're, when your main thrust is screwing with the main character's mind, right? They, and it's happened in movie after movie where, you know, the, the protagonist, all of his or her friends, we see them all get killed one by one and they're kind of slowly losing it until the final confrontation. And in, this movie almost moves backward in that sense where there's, you know, the, and, and again, the, the nature of the plot, which we're not, you know, we haven't gotten in, into so much at this point, um, it, it, it kind of prevents that in a way. Although I, th- I still think some of the people that were the closest to the ki- to the the who I'd call you know Anthony and Brianna, the, who I'd call the main characters, um, there's definitely they they definitely could have done something like that to um, to further it along. But they spent so much time on kind of the mythos of it all and and the, the cultural importance of it, which, which, are, which is great. But I, I think the consequence of that is that we just lose some of that, the personal nature of things and it, and it becomes focused a lot on that, you know, that aspect of the film that, you know, this is the larger cultural implication rather than so much of the, the more personal aspect. So, and, and the, the horror suffers maybe because of it, but I, I think it maybe it's a better film because of it. Maybe not, maybe not overall. I think it says more important things for sure. Oh, not- for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and just to touch on this before we get to the performances, like, I think that's the thing. I think we finally, I think I finally fully processed my feelings here on this now that we've Great. talked through it because, uh, like I said, I just watched it. When did we watch it? Two days ago or something? Uh-huh. So, you know, uh, trying to process and get my notes together, that was one thing I was hung up on is it's like, why do I have an issue with these two parts of the movie? It's like horror versus like just this like genuinely good movie, like yeah. outside of horror, like the, it just this part's good and this part's good. You know what? Like, what am I struggling with? And I think it's because I almost wish it was just the good movie part because the mm-hmm. horror sequences do seem kind of thrust in. Yeah. And because they have to keep that up and they have to get like all of it kind of turns into a means to an end where you have essentially, I'll just say this very vaguely, you have a breakup between two characters, right? Mm -hmm. And the, it it is a a, a man and a woman and the female has a history Mm -hmm. with people in the profession that the guy she just left is a part of. Are you following me? 
Yes. Uh, it's intentionally uh-huh. cryptic there. Yeah. But my my wife was just like, why would she ever date that guy after she had this experience with this other person who did that thing? Like, this is like right. a trigger, <laughs> you know? <Yes. laughs> and and yeah. it's like, that seemed very, that felt very convenient to me, like that specific detail. And I think by the yeah. end, it started to lose me a little bit, even though the end by itself is cool. And yeah. we're not going to give away kind of like the, oh, no. the turn. Uh, but yeah. that's, that's, it's pretty interesting, mm-hmm. but it's like, by then if everything, everything is, especially someone like Coleman Domingo, they start to feel like, uh, plot points, like, uh, plot devices, yeah. right? Like they are, th- they are a means to an end. We have to get to this place. And that's really yeah. the only thing I would kind of ding against the writing. Cause I, otherwise I think it's pretty solid, you know, and I think it, yeah. it tells a good story. It's that third act that it's yeah. like, man, it's entertaining to watch. But with everything else and contextually, yeah. it just kind of doesn't work for me exactly. And again, I don't want to shit on this movie because I actually think yeah. when we're talking about horror movies, man, like I would take this any day, okay, <laughs> over yeah. like what we usually get. So oh, yeah. yeah, I don't have a problem with that. But I'm gonna ju- I want to jump over and we can kind of go back if you want. But I want to sure. jump over just to performances, man. And I'm gonna let you go first here. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're great. But why don't you tell me a little bit about your favorite performances and just how you feel that these people convey these characters? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'll say first, I love Coleman Domingo in anything. You know, I I, I saw him for the first time in uh, uh, Fear the Walking Dead. Yeah. And, you know, and that show is very up and down. But the first moment I saw him, I was like, this dude is going somewhere. And everything I've seen him in, um, you know, since I've, every time I said, like, oh yeah, that's the guy, that's him, that's him. Um, you know, he was in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom um, from last year that was spectacular and he was really great in it. Um, and, and he was, you know, terrific in the couple of scenes he's in here. Um, he's just, he's just one of those guys that every time I see him, I'm like, yes, this movie is, this movie is better now for him being in it. Yeah, you make a good uh, we, point real quick because he was just this year, released mm-hmm. at least, of course, he would have been filming it when... Uh, Candyman was being filmed, I'm sure. But he was in four different projects, two movies, two TV series that were released this year before Candyman. And then Mm -hmm. he's in Candyman, and then he has a Fear the Walking Dead shoot and a new short film that he's a part of that's in post-production now. Of course the dude didn't have time to do this fucking movie. He's (laughs) probably on one of the other six projects he's working on. (laughs) Yeah, so it's like, I get that, but at the same time, it's like, fuck, this sucks, because, like, you're right, he's awesome here, but please continue, I'm sorry I interrupted. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, really, I I loved the acting kind of uh, universally, we talked about Nathan Stewart Jarrett playing, um, playing Troy, um, and, you know, his few scenes, he was really great in that, I, and I was, I was right there with, with the leads, um, you know, uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen and Tiana Paris, are they were both great and they you know they they carried the movie well um so yeah i i kind of just universally liked the the acting there there wasn't really you know thinking about it now there was not someone where i was just like oh that person just really was was crap in this movie you know it's um you know and and it's a and it's kind of a thick complex movie that has a lot of it has a lot well i don't know how complex i could i guess i call it but the the cast is large enough but it's also sort of isolated in a way and maybe maybe that's a maybe that's a COVID thing with the shoot there's a lot of kind of encapsulated little stories you know there's there's little flashbacks with that involve kids and there's 
you know, there, there's a bunch of scenes that really just involve one or two people at a time, um, as opposed to, a, you know, a, a larger scene with, with five and six people in it. Uh, a, a lot of things like, um, you know, here's, here's a scene, here's a flashback scene where a group of boys are doing things encountering Candyman. Here's a scene where a single character encounters Candyman. And, you know, then it's like, of course, we talked about the elevator scene. We talked about the, the art gallery scene. These are all scenes where there's only really one or two people in the scene at a given time. And, you know, you really, it, it really is, is pretty clever. I, I didn't think about it at the time, but, but now that we're sitting here talking about it, I'm like, oh yeah, this totally was like, you could see the, the COVID preparations they make because there's not a lot, even the, the party scene they have um, kind of toward the beginning, it's, a, it's like a dinner party with, with um, uh, Brianna and, uh, um, sorry, Anthony, and then Troy and his boyfriend, who I can't remember, uh, Brian, uh, Brian King played Clive, I believe. Um, there's four of them and they're, they, oh. all, they're all sitting far apart. And, you know, there, there's like one, like a couple of them, like they get close and do the requisite, like, oh, this is the person I love. Like they sit on their lap or that, you know, they put their arm around them, but there's very few people there and they're all kind of socially distanced. So um, I, I, I kind of wonder if we'll watch this movie 10 years from now and be like, yep, that's a COVID shoot right there where they're all <laughs> kind of isolated. Yeah, it also got a COVID budget because it, it was only $25 million. And I say only because that is not even like a mid-range budget. That's still pretty low budget for 2020 money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, and there are a lot of movies like that. Uh, j just to like get ahead here, uh, and I may have already talked about this on, on this episode before you and I started talking, uh, if I get around to it. But uh, if I don't, you know, there are movies like The Green Knight. That was $15 million. Yeah. That's so cheap. Dude, they don't even like make movies that cheap anymore. Or like Stillwater with uh, Matt Damon, $20 million. Like these there are like a lot of cheap movies. And part of me wonders if it was COVID. Like, all right, we're going to keep these budgets down and you need to like make the movie in this. But these movies still look good. And so yeah. it, it, I kind of love that about this kind of COVID era filming. Like I'm sure it sucks, man. Like I'm sure all of their, all of their, um, uh, what do you call it whenever, uh, what do you call it whenever they, like the, the food tent, a catering, like, oh, catering. you know, yeah, whenever, like, I'm sure all their catering was in like individual boxes, like sealed, you know what I mean? Like yeah. choose between chicken or a hamburger, like whatever, <laughs> or, you know, and then there's like, you know, the, the vegan dish or whatever, you know, uh, yeah. and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, um. Yeah, that that's kind of wild. I actually don't think about that enough. I forget that people were making movies during the pandemic, which is pretty wild. So yeah, this would have been one of them. Was this postponed? Was this supposed to yeah, come out yeah, earlier? This to come out. Yeah, this was supposed to come out last year. I that's what I thought. Yeah. That's what I thought. So maybe part of it also was shot like before it happened too. Who knows? Um, yeah. But I'd have to look into it. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't even think to look into that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Anyways, um, so yeah, um, I th yeah, I think the performances are great. I think uh, Tiona, uh, Tiona Paris as Brianna is, I thought she was really great. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, as Anthony is, I mean, he's, those two leads are really great. Um, yeah. I actually really liked Nathan uh, Stewart Jarrett's Troy, though. I really did, like, the yeah. few moments he's in, same with Coleman Domingo. I'm with you on him. Like, I've never seen anything bad with him. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really great. I, dude, I, I'll just say this as vague as possible because anyone, if you don't know this, it's your fault, not mine. But Tony Todd makes an appearance because he was the original Candyman. And all I'm going to say is he makes an appearance in this. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are a lot of cameos mm-hmm. in movies, you know, uh, in, in yeah. the Incredible Hulk movie. You know, you had mm-hmm. Lou Ferrigno come in as just yeah. some random guy, you know, and like right. they'll have these cameos. And a lot of times they're kind of lame, but they're like kind of fun Easter eggs, but they don't do anything. The way they use Tony Todd here, I think is great. That's all it's I'm going to say. Yeah. Very vague. I love... I'm going to call it a cameo. I love the kind of cameo. Like I, I'm, I didn't expect this. I thought this was going to be a Lou Ferrigno in Incredible Hulk. And this is yeah. done, I think very well. And yeah. even when, whenever he's on screen, I didn't know how to take it at first, but the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, like I'm, I'm into how this was done. Uh, yes, o- overall for me, I think, I think this Candyman is certainly worth seeing. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, listeners, mm-hmm. you should definitely, if you're into, to horror and keeping in mind the context that we gave, this is not your traditional jump scare. Go with your friends and like watch this movie expecting like, mm. you know, the 17th paranormal activity or something. That is not what this right. is. This yeah. has a, this has a purpose. This has a message, but it also has some, some thrills. Uh, I think it would be great to see in theaters though. I don't encourage people to go to theaters. If you're comfortable, that's fine. I would definitely check this out uh, when it's on VOD as well. Because uh, yeah. I had a good time just in my living room. But I could also see this being a great experience in a theater. Overall, final thoughts, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I certainly think this is um, uh, a very worthy film to see. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's done very well. Um, you know, we, I've talked about some of the things we could call a shortcoming. Um, but I, I very much enjoyed this movie. Uh, I, I think, yeah, if, if you're watching it, um, and, I, and I hate to say this in a general sense because this is kind of an annoying thing for me, but um, if you did enjoy Get Out and Us, you know, Jordan Peele's other films, the sensibility of this is pretty similar. Um, obviously, it's it's a little, I mean, those are two different films, although they, you know, they both deal with race, obviously, is part of their, um, you know, part of, you know, and and as you said, a part of the film you cannot just remove and have it be anything close to the same. And this one yeah. certainly does that as well. But you know, the the sensibility of of it as a you know compared to those other films is very similar. So um, if you like those and you kind of like the intelligence of it um, of those movies, you'll like this one as well because it has that same kind of intelligence to it. So um, you know, th- again, this isn't a movie where. This is a movie where it's a largely black cast, and they're and they're very intellectual. And I hate to, I again, this is another thing I hate to say. There, um, but you know that that's the stereotype in, in a lot of movies is that black people, quote unquote, talk like you know in a certain dialect. You know, this is much like those other films. Is goes to 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 lengths to make sure that they these are actors that are black. You know, these are not black actors. These are not people quote unquote playing black people. They're they exist in in a in a world, in in a more realistic t- kind of world where every black person doesn't doesn't say yo 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 and, you know and that kind of stuff. They they speak <laughs> like real people, and I love that so much. Uh, I, I again I hate that that this is a, a distinction we have to make, but yeah, it's um it, it's the 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 way it normalizes that 
in the film in the context of a of a Hollywood movie is tremendous to me, and I loved it. And um, I I think this is where we're going with movies, and and this is nothing but a great thing, obviously. So um, yeah, there 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 are very few of any kind of stereotypes. Um, so in that in that case, you're gonna you know you're gonna enjoy that if nothing else. Hopefully, if you don't. You know, I, I don't know what to say to you, but but um, it, it's something that I certainly enjoy um, seeing in my movies where I don't have to be. Oh, yes, this is the ethnic gentleman who, you know, <laughs> who is the comic relief. You know, there's you know, these these are just these are people who sure they're black and they they they're they live in the, the quote unquote black world. But there are. They're they feel like real people living in a, you know, in a in a society, not like a caricature or a stereotype, which is the best thing of, to me, the best thing of all that this movie does is, is it kind of continues that trend. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mentioned the term upperly mobile millennials. And uh, I feel like if you were to use that term and I got that from somewhere else, but if you were to use that term, I feel like the first thing that comes to mind are these like suburban white kids, but it's like, no, this is showing that representation. It's also showing they're not just hood rats. Like right. these, and again, I feel like that's such an antiquated, like, kind of reference. <laughs> and your yo yo yo, which I think is super funny. Like <laughs> we're back in John Singleton era, uh, right. but but I get what you mean, and I, I I agree with like kind of your what you mean by that, uh, because you do either either you get characters like this, but they're either very quickly killed or they are insignificant, or yes. you do get kind of like this traditional. Uh, you know, I have cornrows and I'm listening to hip hop. Like, you know, again, I'm right. using outdated references too, but yeah, you know, you, it's just like the insignificance of race. Mm-hmm. And right. you know, in, in a world where a lot of suburban white neoliberals want to be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, colorblind, right? right? Sometimes the colorblindness mm-hmm. will blind you from the message that actually matters because race is a thing. And I think yeah. this film does a really good job at not only showing you kind of like within this colorblind culture, mm-hmm. but also yeah. forcing you to see blackness in a white world. And yes. you know what I mean Absolutely. by that, you know. Absolutely. Um, and and yeah. so the film is kind of like shot through this, even though the filmmakers are black, it's clearly shot through this almost white lens, but that blackness mm-hmm. just like seeps through and that yeah. is important. And so, um, yeah, the, the representation is something I, I, I look forward to seeing more of. Um, even if I didn't like this movie, I'm glad it's made. I mean, these are the kind of things where I want to see uh, more and more uh, people of color in general making movies, uh, you know, uh, women making more films, which we talked about last year. There were a lot of female filmmakers putting out content. And that was mm-hmm. really, really awesome. And and it was like notable content. Not that not that it's not usually, but what I mean is is like these were getting the awards. These were, you know, getting a lot of buzz. And I just love to see that kind of representation across the board because hey, I'm just like a boring white guy that watches movies and I get it. And I'm not going to understand all of these things on a personal level. And I love that there is representation for those who will. And so um uh, overall I'm putting Candyman over. It looks like Joe is as well. Uh, hey, if you've seen it and you agree or disagree, please hit us up, Medium Cool Pod, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, hit me up at Austin Glidden on Twitter. 
Uh, you can find Joe Shearer and Austin Glidden on Letterboxd.com. If you're on there, you can talk with us uh, about Candyman and anything else that we've watched. Feel free to hit us up. Leave us some comments. Joe, you want to leave us with anything? Uh, hey, Candyman ain't a he. Candyman is the whole damn hive. All right, everyone, that was our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we talked about Candyman, Joe and I did. And that was all. It's always a pleasure having Joe on. He'll be on uh, more often here coming up. We're going to have, especially October. I'm trying to get him on here a lot because, of course, as we all know, he loves horror movies. And uh, though a lot of, funny enough, our October lineup is uh, there's so much coming out like Dune and No Time to Die, the James Bond movie and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I feel like a lot of our long form discussions might be not for sure, but might be discussions about some of these things. If not, maybe they'll just be the short ones. But we're going to have some awesome fun horror stuff coming up in October, which is a month away. And uh, Joe hopefully will be a part of that. And he'll be on Pepper throughout. Uh, we're trying to fit his schedule with ours and, and get him on here some more. So thank you guys so much for listening uh, to our discussion on Candyman and listening to my thoughts on the documentary Val and the film The Green Knight. I hope that uh, you guys get a chance to see both of those. And you can, again, always let me know uh, whether you agree or disagree uh, or just your general thoughts. Yeah, I thought it was fine. Or, yeah, it's really cool. Or whatever you want to say. I don't care. You can find us on Medium Cool Pod at, uh, uh, if you search that on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find me at Austin Glidden on Twitter. And um, you can search Austin Glidden on Letterboxd, and I will pop up. So definitely... Uh, go find me. I would love to talk movies. Uh, and I'm not even going to tell you what's up for next week because although, I again, I have the rest of the year planned out, shit's getting wild, guys. And things keep falling through, and we'll see what happens. So another surprise for you next week. But until then, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you guys listening. I love you so much. Thank you. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy. <laughs>